Well, I know it's early on Sunday morning, but Jim missed the most obvious announcement. He always starts off, what announcements are there? There were five posters on the wall coming in. (laughs) We're going to have a work day on the 29th on Saturday, and this is uh, one of these things that we need to do on occasion to really have a good turnout to accomplish Some of the things we need to do, the shutters on the outside are going to be replaced, so we're going to be running a cherry picker. We need a team of people who will be working on that to take take shutters off, power wash the outside, put shutters back on. We're also going to be repainting the outside of the church from blue to green, and uh, we're going to do some work in the yard, do some cleanup work inside. So there is a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. And if five people show up, it will be a major problem. So we need everybody to uh, make sure they get that on their calendar, rearrange their schedules if necessary in order to be able to accomplish uh, what we need to. This is one of those times when teamwork is going to be essential. So I know that we'll have a good turnout, and that incl- there's always room for um, especially teenagers to be showing up because they can hold a paintbrush just as well as anybody else. So there's uh, a lot to do, and we'll have um, uh, also uh, Sue's going to be arranging for uh, food. We'll ha- bring up some grills and cookouts, so it'll just be a, an overall uh, fun, day, fun day for everybody if work is fun. Also, with regard to the announcement about the uh, for the prep school teachers, uh, I want you to be thinking between now and then about the curriculum as we've had it set up for the last year. Most of you should know that about a year ago we redesigned the Sunday school into a prep school. We put together a curriculum. Uh, Dan, that was part of one of his major assignments last last uh, summer as part of his internship, you know, an old bachelor like Dan who's been in the Marine Corps traveling around and living on tapes most of the time, didn't know, didn't know anything about prep school or kids, and so that was a major part of his education. And he designed that, well, after a year and probably again next year, we're going to need to sit down, take a look at that curriculum and reevaluate, see what we've done, what needs to be tweaked, what needs to be added, what needs to be excluded, and we'll probably do that for at least another uh, couple of years until we get that fine-tuned. We need to think in terms of some long-range planning. Also, uh, we only have a few in high school right now or late junior high, but we have a number of uh, kids coming up, and so there needs to be some long-range planning in terms of what we're going to provide for ongoing biblical training for those who are going beyond the seventh grade. Right now, prep school just goes up to the seventh grade, but once we get a large enough group to go beyond that, then uh, we need to develop something specifically tailored for them. So those of you who are in prep school need to be thinking along those lines, just sort of uh, dreaming, planning, projecting, so that when we get together, we'll have a good uh, planning session. I think that ought to do it for announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayers to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 in the privacy of your priesthood if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word today. Thank you for this nation where we have the freedoms to do so. We continue to pray for the, your protection over this nation, for the, your continued provision of a wall of fire to protect this nation, that you would uh, give our leaders, give our security forces uh, wisdom, give them discernment to correctly evaluate uh, the information that comes in to sift through the uh, hundreds of thousands of bits of information they receive to uh, see that which is important. We pray for the enemy that they would be confused and they would not be able to bring to completion their their evil plans. Father, we pray for our president. We pray for Congress that you would continue to direct them as they make important decisions about this restructuring of government. Now, Father, we pray for this church and for our Ministry is a result of the doctrine that we learn that we might not just hold these truths in some academic fashion, but realize they are to challenge us, they are to transform our thinking, that by them our thinking and our lives are renovated, that we might be a testimony of your grace both to the angels and to those around us, and that we might be able to be used by you to communicate the gospel clearly to those who need to hear it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And what I want to do this morning is to just do some reflection and application on what we've studied in these first two chapters. Now, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul states, For I determined to not, not to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul is just going to talk about Jesus and just tell Jesus stories, uh, Jesus Bible stories to people in Corinth. But that is a profound statement related to the overall subject matter of these first three chapters. Now, the overall subject matter of these first three chapters has to do with, with knowledge. It is the conflict between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. And what Paul is, the point that Paul is making in verse 2 of chapter 2 is that it is Jesus Christ and the cross that is the starting point for all true human knowledge. This is the same thing that he articulated back in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So from this we see the biblical position 
that it is Jesus Christ who is our starting point, and that is because Jesus Christ is the one who is the revealer of God, not in the sense that the Holy Spirit reveals information through the Scriptures, but that we know God because of Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of God, he is the one who reveals him. So the starting point at any level of, of, of real knowledge, according to the Scripture, for the believer is what God says, is God's revelation. And so we make a start with a point that would seem to be obvious, and that is that if the God of the Bible exists, then he determines and defines reality. That's really what this the implication of that statement is that if the God of the Bible exists, then he is the one who determines and defines reality, and he is the one who has revealed to us the nature of of that reality. So to live in harmony, to think in harmony with God's word, so that God's word becomes the starting point of our thinking means that we are living consistent with reality. For the person who rejects the scriptures, then everything that they are constructing upon that that false foundation of knowledge is to one degree or another divorced from reality and at some points they cannot live consistently within their own framework, because at most points, the unbeliever has to live as if there are absolutes, as if there is a concept of right or wrong. You often hear in the course of some debate between a Christian and a non-Christian that a non-Christian will, in one form of statement or another, reject the gospel, reject Christianity, and they are making a value statement that that's wrong. Well, you can't even make a statement of right or wrong. You can't use phrases like ought or should as a non-Christian without presupposing that there is some external absolute that establishes uh, absolute right or wrong. You're presupposing an absolute, the absolute standard you're trying to reject simply by uh, making the statement that Christianity and the claims of Christianity are wrong. So our position is that the only consistent way of thought is to start with the reality of the existence of God and his revelation. Now, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a number of things that are said here that have profound implications for the believer's impact on the unbelieving world, specifically through Witnessing, And so in the last week, I have been thinking about how these things affect uh, the believer's witnessing and our understanding and our uh, skills or strategies, let's say, strategies at witnessing. So we'll start off with uh, about, I've got about 13 different points outlined here, but we'll start off the first uh, four points, really just express some basic principles I've covered already. Point number one, we have to realize, remember, we're looking at, as believers, we're going to look at reality from the viewpoint of the truth of Scripture. That means, and, and un, unapologetically, we are going to use the Scripture, and we must use the Scripture as our starting point. So if this circle def, defines the parameters and boundaries of divine viewpoint, 
then we as believers must make sure that we are established from our starting point, the starting point of our thinking on within that framework. Because if God exists, and this is the first point, if God exists, then reality is what he says it is. Therefore, we must operate within the framework and within the boundaries of what he says because that's reality. So then divine viewpoint is going to equal reality. And if at any point we step outside of that boundary, then at that point we are going to be divorced from reality and we're going to be operating on false assumptions and operating on false methodology. So the first point is if God exists, then reality is what God says it is. Second point, if God exists, then he has revealed that reality to us. Now let me give a little caveat here. When I use the term God here, G-O-D, I am not talking about some abstract deity. This this can't be conformed to the God of just any God out there, the God of of the Hindus, the God of of uh, Islam, the God of deism. I'm specifically referring to the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who revealed himself through the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So when I use the word God, that is what I mean. It's not just some abstract intellectual concept of deity. So if God exists, that is the God of the Bible, as revealed in the Bible, then reality is what he says it is. If God exists, second point, then he has revealed that reality to us. The God of the Bible is a God who wants fellowship with his creatures, and he is a God of who is a person and therefore one who communicates. All that's packed in and is presupposed by that statement. If God exists, then he has revealed that reality to us. In other words, he tells us what the rules are. The unbeliever isn't the one who determines what the rules are. The cosmic system, the culture around us isn't what determines what the rules are. It is God who determines what the rules are for us. In a sense, we could say, and I I probably need to work on this analogy a little bit, but in a sense, it's like having a chessboard. Now, the, the believer has a chessboard. We'll say, if, as we develop the analogy, the chessboard is common ground between the believer and the unbeliever. But we're playing chess, and the unbeliever knows what the rules are. But the, I mean, the believer knows what the rules are, and he's playing chess on that chessboard. But the unbeliever thinks the chessboard is a checkers board, and they're playing checkers. They don't know what the rules are, and they're trying to shift rules in the midst of the game. So you're talking about two different games. And we're playing chess, they're playing checkers, and if the believer steps across the line to try to argue with the unbeliever on his terms, then all of a sudden he is trying to incorporate rules of checkers and bring it into what he's trying to talk about in terms of chess. Now, it's always the unbeliever strategy, and I don't care whether you're talking about a homeless person in downtown Norwich or you're talking about a fifth grader or you're talking about a professor of philosophy down at the university, whether it's it's a sophisticated approach or an unsophisticated approach, the unbeliever is always trying to change the rules of the game. That's part of what it means to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and to be a rebel against God and live on in autonomy and independence from God. 
So as believers, we know what reality is. We know something the unbeliever doesn't know. So we stay within the framework of reality, and that is going to give us a level of confidence and certainty in the midst of any level of communication. Third point, if God exists, then the unbeliever is what God says he is, and he knows what God says he knows. If God exists and God determines what reality is, then the unbeliever is what God says he is, and he knows what God says he knows. That means we have insider, it's like insider trading. We have information that he doesn't have. He may be trying to argue a number of different factors and bringing up certain kinds of conclusions in order to obfuscate the issue or distract us, but we know what's really going on because God has said so and he's given us accurate information. Point number four. The unbeliever then is able to ascertain enough of the meaning of nonverbal revelation to know that God exists and he's accountable for that. So we know that the unbeliever, whether no matter who they are, no matter how strong they may oppose Christianity, whether they are president of the American Atheistic Association or whether they're somebody like Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who promotes an atheistic view of, uh, of evolution, no matter who they are, the Scripture says that at some point in some way they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God existed, and at that instant they had a decision to make, and that was either to accept that or reject it. And that in most cases in human history, that most people go on negative volition at that point, and they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, so let's turn there. I think this is important for us to understand whenever we are witnessing to an unbeliever, recognizing that he already knows certain things, and it's not up to us, therefore, to try to convince him of the truth of Scripture. It's not up to us to prove that God exists. In fact, we can, as I will demonstrate, you can't prove that God exists. And when we look at that statement, what does it mean by proof? And what is the criteria that you would use in proof? Are you going to use rationalism? Are you going to use reason? Are you going to use experience to prove that God exists? Well, now what you've done is you've changed the rules and you've stepped over into the unbeliever's worldview and you're using his standards to prove your conclusion. That's a right thing done in a wrong way and the result is always wrong. Romans 1, 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, that is a term that is not descriptive. See, some Calvinists, many Calvinists, have taken this as a gnomic principle. And let me show you the difference here. See, when you look at a Greek verb, it's a present tense verb. Now, you have to decide how. what's the nuance, what's the shade of meaning in that present tense verb, and that's where comparing Scripture with Scripture comes to play, and also you can make mistakes here by imposing your theology. If you take this as a gnomic present, which would be a universal truth, which is how Calvinists take it, then what they're saying is that men always suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's where they'll go with their definition of total depravity, where they get the idea of total inability, is every human being in human history is automatically going to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, if every human being in human history is going to automatically suppress the truth and unrighteousness, then nobody's going to express positive 
volition. That's what they're saying. The only thing that makes a difference is God's going to reach in and tweak their volition. That's where you get the idea of unconditional election and irresistible grace, the uh, I and the you in TULIP. You all are familiar with the five points of Calvinism expressed through the acronym uh, TULIP, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. So they take it that way. However, if you look at the, pas- the, the whole passage, it's more of a historical analysis of what took place at, really after the flood historically in, in the deterioration of, of various civilizations and the civilization of man. So it's make, making a statement that God's wrath is revealed against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, indicating that there are those who do not suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that's those who are positive to God at God consciousness. Verse 19, the wrath of God is revealed because of one reason. This is divine judgment. The wrath of God here refers to general divine judgment on uh, unbelieving humanity, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. That means it is revealed in them. That's the Greek word there indicates that it is clear to them. What may be known of God is clear to them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, God is saying that he has made enough of a revelation of who he is and what he is and that he is in creation so that every single human being, just by looking out at the world, has evidence, enough evidence that God exists and his nature for him to be held accountable for that knowledge. For since the creation of the world, Paul says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. There is a clear physical, visible, it's not just abstract concepts of divine attributes, but that there's clear, visible, nonverbal information about God's character, about certain attributes of God. His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's the point. There's enough information given to leave the unbeliever without an excuse. He can't say, well, I didn't have enough information. Well, there's not enough evidence for the existence of God. God says, yes, there's more than enough evidence. The issue isn't your reason, and the issue isn't experience. The issue goes is much more profound. The issue has to do with spiritual realities, and that is that ultimately the issue is whether or not you want to accept your position as a creature under the authority of God or as some sort of independent existence where you are the one who determines determines the issue. In other words, the issue has to do with arrogance, not intelligence. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They know God exists, but they rejected negative volition. It's a historical aorist here referring back to what took place after the flood. They didn't glorify him as God, uh, nor, uh, so, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. This demonstrates progress here in their deterioration into negative volition. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God 
into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, what happens here is that they exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature. This is what happens, what we read in verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. So here we have our two categories established by the Scripture. Divine viewpoint is the thinking of the Creator. Human viewpoint is a separate and distinct category that is the thinking of the creature. And this is the creature is going to use as his starting point for all thought something inside the creation. He's going to start with history. He's going to start with human reason. He's going to start with morality. He's going to start with some level of human experience, but everything is inside the creaturely realm. So what happens is that in his thinking, he's going to elevate some principle of the creation to some sort of independent or autonomous status so that he is now using that standard to judge God. That is, that, that's the thesis of what I'm saying here. Now, we have to be aware of this, not because this is something you're going to bring up in witnessing, but this is your framework. This is understanding where we as believers are coming from in the whole process of uh, witnessing and explaining the gospel to an unbeliever. Okay, point number four looked at Romans 1, 18 to 22, and makes the point that the unbeliever is a- able to ascertain enough of the meaning of nonverbal revelation to know God exists and to be accountable for that. But that's not enough to get saved. The unbeliever can't get saved just by looking out at the trees and looking out at the complexity of of the creation and saying that just couldn't happen by chance just because of a throw of the dice. We can't have uh, wonderful oak trees and maple trees. There has to be something more I want to know about that. So that's the expression of positive volition. And then God, because God is just and because God is fair, is going to get specific verbal information to him. See, the creation, the testimony of the creation, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, isn't uh, specific. It, nonverbal revelation is nonspecific revelation. It just gets us information that God exists and something about his power and his nature. But it's not enough to be saved. Now we go on from point number four, recognizing the unbeliever you're trying to, to witness to already has an inherent internal witness. He knows and knew at some point that God exists, and he rejected it. He rejected it not because uh, he, may, he may come up with certain excuses, but ultimately the rejection is that he doesn't want to submit to the authority of God. He may amass rational and empirical and moral reasons that are used later to rationalize and justify that unbelief. But that's not the, the, the foundational reason for the unbelief. So point number five, then, is that the ultimate issue, therefore, is not evidence. Scripture says there's more than enough evidence. It's not reason. It's not empirical data. The problem isn't intellectual. It is spiritual. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. 
Though the, though the issue isn't reason, though the issue isn't empiricism or evidence or history, though the issue isn't intellectual, that doesn't mean that it is, that Christianity is anti-intellectual, anti-reason, or anti-empiricism. That is mysticism. Christianity is not mysticism. The issue is what is the ultimate criterion, and for the believer, the ultimate criterion is not going to be history or reason or morality or experience because when you pick that as your criterion to determine truth, what you, what you do then is you elevate Actually, what's going on here is when you look out there in human, with human experience or human history, that's not just sort of a neutral fact. For example, when, when you as a believer go and you discover a fossil of a dinosaur, you instantaneously reinterpret that, that fact. That's a brute fact, but it doesn't stay a brute fact for long. You immediately look at that as a as a the residual effect of a of, of the death of a creature that God created whereas the unbeliever looks at that and automatically interprets it within another framework and that is because they take they're taking some element of inside creation and elevating it over and above God and then that becomes this autonomous independent abstract criteria for determining for determining truth and determining uh, reality. And all that we're saying as believers is that the, the ultimate criteria isn't reason, it isn't experience, it is the fact that God speaks, that God has spoken and given accurate and true information. So the difference is one then, that we will get into later, and this is a vital issue that very few people ever talk about, and that is the starting point. The starting point, not in a conversation with an unbeliever. We'll talk about that as well, but the starting point, um, in other words, the assumptions that you and the unbeliever bring to the table before you ever start talking. We'll get to that down around point eight or nine. So the ultimate issue, you must realize, is not going to be reason or empiricism, and that means that you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to answer every question that an unbeliever may come up with. You don't have to, you don't have to understand history. You don't have to master uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You don't have to uh, understand all those things. Not that you'd... You shouldn't understand those things, but you don't have to feel inadequate. The issues here are ultimately going to be spiritual issues. They ultimately have to do with the revelation of God. They don't have to do with trying to present enough arguments or enough evidence uh, for the existence of God. Point number six, then. If God exists, that is, the God of the Bible who has revealed himself and revealed truth to us in the Scriptures... If God exists, then the Holy Spirit is doing certain things behind the scenes in terms of making the gospel clear. That means when you sit down and engage in a conversation with an unbeliever and you're going to witness to that unbeliever, you know that you've got an ally in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is doing certain things behind the scenes. It's not up to you then. It's not you that's trying to convince the other person. It, because ultimately, you and I can't convince the other person. It's not a one-on-one argument. The issues are spiritual, and so there has to be a spiritual information or 
affirmation given, and that's provided by God the Holy Spirit. And that raises another question in light of what we studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says that the natural man, we studied that, the soulish man, the unbeliever, the unregenerate man who does not possess a human spirit that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Now, we saw that the things, that term, refers back to that which God has revealed in Scripture. So that the, the natural man does not accept or receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And this, the Greek makes it clear he is not able to know them because they are discerned through the human spirit. So then how does the unbeliever understand the gospel? I mean, that's part of the things of God, isn't it? The reasoning goes. And how can then, if the unbeliever can't, by nature of the fact that he's missing a human spirit, can't understand the things of the spirit of God, then how can he ever understand the gospel? Now, we set up the diagram a couple of weeks ago on the the, uh, grace learning spiral. We start off with the pastor teacher, and in this case, somebody who's witnessing, presenting the gospel, and functioning as an evangelist. The pastor teacher teaches to believers, and the Holy Spirit who dwells and is filling the believer at that point, as part of his filling ministry, is making the doctrine understandable. But the unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Well, there are two options As far as I know, there are two options. There may be others. But as far as I know, there are two options given for trying to solve this problem. The first option you're going to love. first option is that God regenerates man first, and then belief follows. See, that's the Calvinistic answer. That's the hyper-Calvinistic answer. And you read you read books like one of the great Reformed theologians in the late 19th century was a man by the name of, of Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper wrote a book on the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit. Never mentions the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Spirit. But in his section on regeneration, he argues that, that those who are elect of God are actually regenerated maybe years before they express faith in the gospel. See, that ends up in a very subtle form of fatalism, and that is rejected. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, let me give you a little analogy on that. Let's say that you're going to college, you're going to school, you're taking a course somewhere, and I make the statement, you can make an A through hard work and study. You can make an A through hard work and study. What comes first, making the A or the hard work and study? The hard work and study. That's the basic of the grammar, the grammatical function of the through clause. The means always precedes the result. So the clear grammar of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes it clear that faith precedes salvation. And if you look at the context of Ephesians chapter 2, it starts off saying that we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. So the context of salvation there is 
specifically talking about regeneration, even though that word is not used. So we have to reject that first option because it doesn't fit the biblical text, number one. That's always your starting point is the text of Scripture. And number two, because it ends up theologically in a form of fatalism. The other solution is the one that we're going to look at in terms of John chapter 16, and that is that... Our, our, well, actually, I had three three solutions down. The third solution is the more Arminian solution, and that is that somehow God removes the problem for all human beings so that one thing they can understand is the gospel. That that That's the solution of Wesleyanism and Arminianism, and they called it prevenient grace. And somehow what that does is that, that man is not as totally depraved as he ought to be because one element is removed for everybody. And that doesn't fit the scriptures either. So you have a, an Arminian answer that's false and a Calvinistic answer that's false. And the clue for the answer comes from John chapter 16. So let's turn, turn there. John chapter 16. Just a reminder of this because we went through this in, in detail when I was exegeting through John chapter 16. But it reminds us that the of the crucial role of God the Holy Spirit in making the gospel clear to the unbeliever. John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He, that is God the Holy Spirit, will convict, and the word there for convict in Hebrew, I mean in Greek, is elenko, which means to present an irrefutable case. It is the kind of case that a lawyer dreams of making when he is in the courtroom to either defend or to prosecute a case, that he is going to make an airtight case. That's what elenko means, that God the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world. Notice, not believers but the world, that is the world of unbelievers. He will convict the world. He will present an airtight case to the world concerning three things. Three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, it would be very easy for us to, to stop right there and go off and explain sin because everybody's a sinner and go into personal sin. Uh, or righteousness, the second category, and define those independently from the text. But the, Jesus didn't stop there. He defined what he meant by sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Notice it's sin, not sins. He's not concerned about personal sins. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our personal sins on the cross. The sin that is the issue, therefore, is acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's why John says in verse 18 of chapter 3, He who believes on me is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed. Not because he sinned, not because he committed adultery, not because he was a mass murderer, not because he was a serial killer, not because he was a pervert, but because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the first thing the Holy Spirit is going to be doing when you're witnessing to that unbeliever is he is going to be uh, convicting them of the fact that they do not trust in Christ as their Savior. They are trusting in something else, 
and they're always trusting in something else. See, what happens often is the unbeliever says, well, I'm just, I'm not a man of faith. Yeah, you are. Your faith is in your autonomous reason and your ability to define reality apart from the revelation of God. Everybody is at, at root level a believer. The issue is, what are you believing in? And sometimes in the process of explaining the gospel, you have to expose uh, that kind of irrationality. Secondly, John says, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And, uh, and the point of righteousness here is that in God is righteous, man is lacks righteousness, minus R, for absolute perfection, to have fellowship with anything, that, that object of God's fellowship must also have plus R. And so part of that conviction is that we do not meet the standard of God and God's perfection. Third, in verse 11, concerning judgment, because of the rule of this world, has been judged. That's a future perfect tense, indicate or prophetic perfect, that the, the ruler would be judged the next day, actually, on the cross. So that's what the Holy Spirit is going to be uh, convicting them of, is that, that sin has been judged and the rebellion has been judged and dealt with and that all sins have been, have been paid for. So this, this is the threefold uh, element to the gospel that God the Holy Spirit is going to be emphasizing in any witnessing encounter. Now, if you're off trying to argue creation and evolution or if you're off trying to, to argue uh, some other facet, then you're not giving the Holy Spirit a whole lot to work with because the Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He always works with the Word of God and with the Scriptures. So we have to focus on what God is emphasizing. That doesn't mean that these other issues are ignored. It's how we handle them. And that and learning that is part of growing and maturing and developing experience. So... We know that, point number six, that if God exists, then the Holy Spirit is doing certain things behind the scenes in terms of making the gospel clear. So we just have to express the gospel to the best of our ability, and God the Holy Spirit is going to be working to make sure certain things are clear. Now, don't use that as a justification to be an ignorant believer and just sort of shoot people with your gospel gun. See, some people take that to the to the to an illegitimate position that all I do is just give them the gospel and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and then I've satisfied my witnessing responsibilities, and I just move on till I shoot the next unbeliever with my gospel gun. See, you, you, we have to interact with people because that's what that's that's what witnessing is all about. It is it is part of developing a relationship that involves two areas of life, which is part, point seven. Witnessing involves two areas, the lips and the life. Involves two areas, the lips and the life. What we communicate verbally is more important than we communicate through the witness of our life. But we need to have a life that in some level substantiates what we are saying. Both of these are are important. The life gives us a platform in many cases to communicate clearly, but don't just say, well, I'm going to witness by living a good life and by always being in class and and uh, people see a Bible on my desk. You know, so many people cop out of witnessing because they're basically uh, cowards. And they, uh, and that, that that's another aspect of that is that they don't know any doctrine. 
or they're not applying any doctrine. So witnessing involves two areas. You have a life that is a nonverbal witness, just like common common grace, and Romans 1 is a nonverbal witness, but that doesn't get them saved. That may bring them to a point where they're curious, interested, where they are um, uh, ready to listen, but uh, it is the witness of the lips that gives the specific requirements for salvation. Point number eight, our life, therefore, becomes a platform from which, from which we witness. Unbelievers watch us. We must realize that witnessing is not simply communicating abstract concepts about an abstract God. You see, that's what God was doing. He didn't give us a philosophy book. He did not uh, present himself in just abstract concepts. He incarnated himself in Jesus Christ. So God is continuously incarnating himself, and it's not just a, Christianity is not just a matter of abstract ideas or concepts. That's Platonism. Ninth point. Eighth point is our life is a platform from which we witness. And point nine, our verbal witness must be one that doesn't compromise our view of reality. See, we're playing chess and we're on a chess board. Don't be easily brought over into thinking that uh, you can you can play checkers and use checker, the rules of checkers. Don't don't be subtly sucked into an approach that says, "Well, prove you you want me to believe in God. Well, prove that God exists." And then we have to come up with. Let me see if I can roll this back. Prove that God exists. Well, when the unbeliever says, "Prove that God exists." Let's parse that statement. What does it mean to prove? What is the criteria for proof? Is it reason? Well, who determines the starting point of reason? Is it experience? Well, who interprets these fat when 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 you come to this point and you start talking about about either reason or experience, you've already made certain assumptions about the nature of reality. If the if ultimate reality is fluid based on chance, then the unbeliever's view of experience or of reason is going to be a view of reason that floats on a sea of chance. Now, that is not the same view of reason that you as a believer hold. But if you buy into his view, then what you're doing is you are selling your birthright and compromising your foundation before you even get started. We have to realize that witnessing isn't a debate. Don't get sucked into some kind of an argument over over information. Secondly, witnessing isn't, this is all under point nine, that our verbal witness doesn't compromise our view of reality. It's not a debate. As soon as you start debating, you've already lost because you've forgotten what you're doing. Witnessing isn't about who's right. It's not about proving your position versus their position. It's not about convincing someone that they're wrong and Christians are right. We must remember it's not our job to win them. See, the verbiage that came out of 19th century evangelicalism, soul winner terminology, that we're here to win people to Christ, puts it in the framework of a contest. It's not about winning them. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to communicate the information as clearly as possible where there are legitimate questions, to answer them to the best of our ability, and then to leave the rest to God the Holy Spirit. How we witness is as important as the content of our witnessing. 
A right thing done in a right way is right, but a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Don't try to bring someone to salvation through some sort of human viewpoint approach that keeps man as the ultimate determiner of truth. Actually, in witnessing, the only real failure is silence. Now, I want to think a minute about an approach to witnessing. One of the problems that we all face as believers, I face, you face, we all face as believers, is um, is how to get started, how to maybe begin a conversation where we can uh, orient a person towards the gospel. We all face various problems in common. Uh, feelings of inadequacy that maybe I don't know enough. I, the only inadequacy that's legitimate is you don't know enough about the Bible and you don't know enough doctrine. But the interesting thing that you usually find out when you talk to people, people who say, well, you know, I would witness more if I knew more, you normally hear that from people who've been going to church for 10 years or more. It's just an excuse. I think some of the most ex- enthusiastic people who are witnessing are people who are fairly new believers who are still uh, a little excited about what they've learned, but they've learned enough to be able to witness. Now, there's some who, who get excited, and all they've got is emotion, and they're in trouble, and they usually get, get fouled up the first time they try to witness. But um, we need to have an approach to witnessing that is somewhat uh, accessible to everyone, and there's all kinds of different approaches. There's different tracks that people use. And I want to present an approach that I've run across recently that I think has some real merit to it because, first of all, it's a non-confrontational approach. Number two, it is an approach that you can, you can mold and shape to almost any kind of conversation. And, and number two is, is you're not telling them anything. They're trying, sort of discovering it all on their own. And that is an application of the principle, point number 12, that let the Holy Spirit do the convincing. Don't try to badger or beat somebody with the gospel. So let me go over this. This is a series of questions that you can ask, and you ought to jot these down and just think about these in the process of explaining, giving, getting an opportunity to witness to somebody. First of all, just ask them a question. Do you have any kind of spiritual belief? You have any kind of spiritual belief. Now, everybody at some level has some kind of spiritual belief. Some people may say, no, I don't. Great. Some people say, yes, I do. And then they start telling you. They may talk for 15 or 20 minutes uh, saying all kinds of things you find horrible, offensive, ridiculous. They may share all of their ignorance. And you just sit there and say, hmm, hmm, isn't that nice? Don't judge. Don't critique. Don't evaluate. Just let them talk. And then when they get through, ask the next question. That is, well, that's all very interesting. Well, do you believe there's a heaven or a hell? you believe there's a heaven or a hell? And they'll say either yes or no. They'll believe, yes, uh, I think there's a heaven but not a hell. They may say all kinds of different things. And then once again, don't evaluate any of it. Just say, well, isn't that interesting? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? Now, I heard one evangelist make the point that that 90% of the time when they don't believe in heaven or hell, they will say they go to heaven. (laughs) But just ask the question, well, if you died today, this afternoon, would you go to heaven or hell? And if they say heaven, then you can respond by asking, well, on what basis would you go to heaven? Then the next question that you ask after that, now, if if you don't, um, uh, if what you were believing wasn't true, would you want to know? Now, they're either going to say no, 
which case you just shut up and go on because they're, they're negative. They don't want to know, so that's it. Fine. You see, you've done your job. You've tried to create an opening, see if there's any level of positive volition there, and there's obviously none, so you just move on. If they say yes, then you pull out your pocket New Testament and open it up to a verse like Romans 3.23 and say, well, would you please read this verse. Let them read the verse. Don't you read it to them. Let them open a Bible. It's good for everybody at some point in their life to, to come across a Bible and actually read the verse. If you can't, have them read it out loud. Just say, well, read that out loud to me. What does Romans 3.23 say, and what does that mean to you? And let them tell you. And then go to the next verse, Romans 6.23. Have, it doesn't, you don't have to use these precise verses, but just verses that indicate that, that say something. Remember, God says he uses his word. That in Isaiah, it says, my word will not come go forth from me void. So you're just using the word. You're not telling them anything. You're just saying, okay, read that. What does that mean to you? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus' life, Christ our Lord. What does that mean to you? And then go to... Uh, uh, a verse, like you can go to John 3, 3, where Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, don't ask them what that means, because they won't be able to tell you any more than Nicodemus could tell Jesus what it meant at that point. At that point, you can tell them what it means. You've got to ha- be born again. There has to be a change before you can get to heaven. Then you can go to verses like John 14, 6, John 3, 16, John 3, 18, Verses that emphasize that Jesus is the focus of the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way. At some point, you're going to run into something. Well, you know, I think anybody can go to heaven. All kinds of ways to get to heaven. Oh, really? Oh, really? Let's see what, what Jesus said about that. Go to John 14:6. What does that say? What do you think Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. See, at any point, they may say, well, I don't really believe that. And they may end the conversation. Great, fine, just move on. And then eventually bring, get to Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Well, do you want to, do you want to go to heaven or not? You know, then it's their decision and you can give them the opportunity. At that point, they have an opportunity to either accept Christ or not. But that's a, that is a fairly simple approach, and you can use that with anybody, anywhere. Remember, if we don't use opportunities to witness, what we're basically doing is giving people the opportunity to, to, to continue on the road to the lake of fire. It, it, these are eternal issues, and too often we use the fact that, well, I don't want to offend anybody, I'm afraid, I'm nervous. We use all these superficial excuses. We forget the big picture that this is an eternal life and death situation. Now, point number 13. I think point number 10 was that I was going to give you an approach to witnessing. Don't worry about problems such as inadequacy, fear of rejection, uh, that sort of thing. Point number 11. I think I skipped point 11. Point 11 was um, in, in various surveys, about 15% of all conversions occur through some sort of big event like a Billy Graham crusade or a church revival or some kind of major evangelistic event. 85% of conversions occur through one person telling another person the gospel. And that an unbeliever usually hears the gospel an average of 7.6 times. I know one guy, Jewish guy down in Houston, who's probably heard the gospel a thousand times. He's a friend of a Several people who go to Barack, and every time they have a party, he's invited, and everybody at the party gives him the gospel. That's been going on for 10 years. 
So that means there's a lot of people out there that just need to hear the gospel one time in order to make that average work out. So, okay, point number point number uh, twelve then or thirteen. No two witnessing situations are the same. Don't try to use a canned approach. That's why I like that the approach I just gave you is it's flexible. You can use that with anybody in any kind of situation. No two witnessing situations are the same. Therefore, be flexible. Now, flexibility in anything in life only comes through experience. If you never start witnessing to anybody, you're never going to develop the kind of experience you need to be able to, to communicate the gospel in a relaxed manner to unbelievers. So you have to start. And it's always difficult to start. And it, it, but it will come, and you just pray about it, and God will give you the opportunities. No two witnessing situations are the same, therefore this demands flexibility. Different kinds of people are going to come across your path. Some are ready. They are prime. They've heard the gospel two or three times, or they're going through a life situation, they're struggling. They're ready. You're going to give them the gospel, and they're going to leap at it. Other people you run into are in the process of being prepared, just as Paul says in, in, in Corinthians that, that Apollos watered and others planted and, and God gave the increase. And that means you may be one who's just planting that seed for the first time and somebody else is going to come along and water it and somebody else has come after that and they may hear it eight more times before they finally uh, respond. So you may be in the middle of that process, and just because they don't accept the gospel doesn't mean that it, that God isn't using it in some way in their life. So, and, and still others need to be challenged. Some are ready for answers, some aren't. Some have no real, are, are very easy to witness to in some ways because they're prepared. Others, others because of their background have a lot of intellectual questions. They may be uh, a little more difficult, but it's not because they they don't wa- they don't want or they don't won't eventually believe. It's just that because of the, the the cultural baggage they bring with them, because of their background, because of the way they were raised, whatever it might be, they just have to work through some things, and they have have some questions that they're using. Uh, some, and that's going to call for discernment on your part because some people are going to use questions or going to raise questions. What about the heathen? What about those who never heard? How can a good God, a loving God, uh, let evil things happen in the world? Uh, sometimes they're going to use, bring up those questions because they are truly legitimate concerns for them that they've thought about and they, they, they want answers to. Uh, they may not be able to understand all the dimensions of the a- answer because they're still unregenerate, but others are going to raise those questions simply because they've heard some philosophy professor articulate that or they've, they've heard their parents say that, and, and they're just using that as a way to distract you from the issues and not to, not to focus on their responsibility to uh, trust in God and trust in the gospel. So we have to go back to the principle that if the God of the Bible exists and all reality is what he says he is, then the unbeliever is in the condition God says he is, and God's communicating through you gospel information. The Holy Spirit is using you to convict him of the truth of the gospel, and so we can relax and we can uh, give the gospel to them. Uh, knowing that all these things are going on in the background. You don't have to wait until somehow you know enough and can operate on that basis. Now, 
the challenge for each of us is to recognize that this is our responsibility to witness. We need to start the starting point, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have to work out for there and understand that God defines what reality is, and reality means that ultimately there is a point of accountability in, in, in time, and that accountability is going to be at the end of time with the, the uh, judgment or the great white throne judgment when unbelievers will stand before God and all they will have with him is their works. It's our responsibility. It's a mission that God has given each and every believer and a responsibility God's given each and every believer to witness. So it's up to us to be properly trained and to apply doctrine and to be involved in that process. It's it's always difficult, and, and we have to avoid all kinds of superficial and artificial approaches. I hated it when I was taking, uh, had to take, we in second year at seminary, we had a course, Soteriology and Evangelism. You had nine weeks of soteriology and three weeks of evangelism, and part of the assignment in evangelism was you had to witness to three people. Now, when you're a seminary student, and you're living on campus, or I wasn't living on campus, but I had two roommates who were going to Dallas Bible College, and I, I didn't know, I never came in contact with an unbeliever. That was the most artificial assignment I ever had to fulfill, just to go out and cold cock three or four people just to fulfill an assignment. Now, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that every believer is part of our responsibility as our priesthood. The believer priest is witnessing, just like our responsibility is Christian service, just like the responsibility of every believer is giving. You know, there are spiritual gifts that relate to these, but for every believer, these are part of our responsibility. So we have to uh, learn how to do it and to do it well. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged with the importance of witnessing and the dynamics that are involved, recognizing that all reality is what you say it is, and therefore that we we are required to communicate the truth of your word, that you have revealed yourself to us and you have revealed the problem that man faces, which is sin, and the solution, which is faith alone in Christ alone. It's a perfect plan because it's not dependent upon any human factor. It's not dependent upon human intellect. It's not dependent upon human ability. It's dependent upon simply accepting what Jesus Christ did for us as our substitute on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning, that they would take this opportunity right now to trust Christ as their Savior. It's not about proof. It's not about evidence. It's not about reason. It is about your decision towards the creator God of the universe. It's about whether or not you are willing to accept the fact that you are a finite creature and that there is an infinite creator who defines reality or whether you want to continue down the path of autonomy and independence, making uh, your own intellect, your own reason, the ultimate determiner of reality. The issue is that God has said that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins and that by simply accepting that, you can have eternal life. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of ritual. It's simply a matter of recognizing that Jesus Christ died on the cross as your substitute and that your salvation is based simply and exclusively on trusting in him alone. Father, we pray that you challenge the rest of us with the things that we have studied today 
the importance of our responsibility as witnessing that we might be good, faithful witnesses of the good news that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all sins in human history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.